It is just a little before 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning, August 18th. Good to be here with you again for our Tuesday morning devotion. Uh, man, Oshavitz, every time I uh, give the date each Tuesday, I'm always like a little stunned still. I'm like, oh yeah, August 18th. Next week it will be January 14th. <laughs> it's just the nature of, of time right now, folks. Uh, but uh, anyhow, good to be here with you today. You, you can tell that I'm not coming to you from my office. I'm coming to you from what looks like the wonderfully green hills of Scotland. Uh, that's actually not true. Maybe someday. Uh, I am coming to you from Tuscarora Christian Conference Center this morning, where my family is at a pastoral, uh, is at a, an event called Pastor's School, which we get a little education and a little, uh, little time for my family to rest and reconnect with old uh, pastor friends and glad to be here with you and glad to be able to uh, do it from this this wonderful place so um, so what is the scoop for today well uh, as I think you know we've been each Tuesday looking at the Old Testament lectionary text for the week and um, and the reason we've been doing that is well because it you know I think it tends to um, as I mentioned before it tends not to be preached on most of the time on Sundays uh, it certainly doesn't have to be, you know, and that's, it's not a criticism, but what tends to get the attention is the gospel text, and that's very understandable. Uh, and so I figured it would be good to show the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. For a much more in-depth look at doing that each week, uh, you can check out Chad Bird's um, videos that usually come out Wednesday or Thursday uh, that are packed with meaning. Mine is more just broad overview, but hopefully uh, you you find it helpful. So, um, <clears throat> so with that being said, we're looking at Isaiah 51 verses 1 through 8 this morning. Isaiah 51 verses 1 through 8, and uh, in the passage from uh, Matthew's Gospel that this is connected to this week is Matthew 16 verses 13 through 20, and in that passage, Jesus asks the famous question to Peter and his disciples, "Who do people say that I am?" Who do people say that I am? And of course, Peter's uh, response at first, you know, some people think you're a prophet, some people, people think you're Elijah, come back from the dead, you know, others, this, that, and the other thing. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say I am, Peter? And of course, Peter gives the famous response, you are the Christ, uh, the son of the living God. And uh, Jesus then responds that on this rock, he looks at Peter and he says, on this rock, I am going to build my church. Now, uh, there are two ways of sort of understanding what Jesus means when he says rock. Um, on the one hand, you have uh, some throughout the history of the church that have interpreted that to mean that Jesus is going to build his church on Peter, that Peter is going to be the head of his church. Indeed, there was a sense in which that was true, that Peter was the leader of the early church. That's pretty indicative from the book of Acts. Uh, but there's another sense in the way it's read, or another way we interpret it, which is the way I interpret it, which is the rock that he is speaking of there is not particularly Peter, but the rock is, of course, his confession of who Christ is, that that is what his church is going to be built upon. So with that, by way of background in Matthew's Gospel, let's look at Isaiah 51 now and see where some connections might be found. The Lord says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry 
from which you were dug. Now let's just stop there. Obviously, you see the connection with the word rock. But when you think about rock in the Old Testament, there's, well, lots of imagery that comes to mind. Of course, there's uh, the nation of Israel going through the wilderness and being able to come upon a rock that uh, gives them water, you know, miraculously gives them water. Uh, Paul will later go on to tell us that that rock that was in the wilderness with the people of God to provide them their sustenance indeed is fulfilled in Christ, indeed was Christ with them in the midst of the wilderness. But there's also, of course, you know, the imagery from the Psalms where you're, you know, sort of presented with God as this fortress, you know, this rock that we can hide under, that we can shelter under, that we can find strength from. And that certainly is, um, <clears throat> certainly is applicable here as we're uh, thinking about it. But, but here it's, it's a little more specific because the way that, um, the way this is going to be used is that it's like a rock that the first sort of cornerstone from a, from a new building is built from. It's the very beginning, like, look back to where your foundation is, is the idea here. And so verse two, he says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. God's point is pretty clear. Uh, to, to a group of people that maybe struggling, and it looks like that could be the case here in Isaiah, to see where God's hand of providence and salvation, care and love is in the midst of their own kind of wilderness experience, God reminds them of what he's able to do by pointing to Abraham. And everyone reading this would have known the story of Abraham. He was, of course, Father Abraham. And the, the idea behind this is that God, God says, Look back at that story. Abraham was a nobody. Abraham had no things that anybody cared about at all. He was not important. He was not a man of prominence. As a matter of fact, he wasn't even worshiping me. He was from a, a cult. He was from another religion. But I was able to take that guy, call him out of obscurity, call him out of nowhere, make a promise to him, and based on my promise, which is efficacious in and of itself, I was able to create the nation that you were a part of now. But it all started way back with this one guy. And by the way, the way I did it seemed entirely improbable. In fact, there were times he didn't even believe that it was going to happen the way I promised it would happen. But indeed it did happen, and Sarah eventually bore a son. So God's point is, if I'm able to do that, can you trust me to deal with what you're going through right now? Of course. Verse 3, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. Remember, Zion is a name for sort of the people of God or the city of God. They're all kind of encapsulated together. And makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. So here again, just as God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to take from him one and bring a blessing to all the nations, that he was going to multiply his offspring far more than he could even imagine, as much as the stars in the sky, he says. He says, I'm able to do the same thing with you, Zion. I'm able to do the same thing today. I will do the same thing. I'm going, I am a God of restoration, of renewal. That's what I do. 
So that's the sort of the first reason he gives us for looking to him in our lives, that he is the God who is able to take the nobodies, the nothings, the obscure things, and, and make something out of them. Now let's move on to verse 4, the second reason God sort of commands our attention here. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. So here in, these, in this set of verses, verses 4 through 6, you have God pointing his people to what will be. So if he was at the beginning pointing them back to what he has done, now God is pointing them to what will be happen. And there's a few things he mentions. First of all, he mentions the fact that he is going to draw people from all places, from everywhere. It's not just going to be them, but he's going to draw people from all places everywhere to himself. That this is something they can anticipate, that they can expect to happen. That this is the power of God, that he's able to take people that are rank pagans from nowhere and make them part of his people, in, in integrate them into Zion, if you will, his promised people. His people of promise is a better way of saying it. So I'm going to send my light out to the peoples, and they're going to be drawn. My righteousness is going to draw near, and it's going to go out to many. And yet at the same time, God does promise in this passage that there will be a day of judgment against the world. And this imagery that he uses here is imagery that's actually referenced in the book of Revelation. I know that, of course, because I've been preaching through the book of Revelation verse by verse for the last almost a year now. Uh, and in the very end, when God finally um, brings complete renewal to the earth, brings heaven down to earth, there's this passage, this verse that says that earth and sky flee away, flee away, and then God brings heaven upon heaven down to earth. Well, Similar language is used here in Isaiah, where he says, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment. So the idea is, how is this supposed to draw people to him? How is this supposed to bring comfort to his people? Well, if you're in the midst of great persecution, and you're in the midst of terrible suffering at the hands of unjust people, if you're imprisoned, enslaved, if your children are raped and killed, if you're going through what seems like hell on earth, then you have every reason to look to God to bring justice, to hope that God will one day bring justice. It's easy in our world, especially in the West, Jürgen Moltmann, a theologian, makes a great point of this, that that only in the cushy suburban lifestyle where you have sort of all your needs met can you look at the idea of justice and frown. Because if you've actually gone through hard times, if you've actually gone through real persecution and real injustice, then you find the idea that God will impose justice wonderfully comforting, that there will be something that rights the wrongs of this world finally when heaven does come down to earth. 
And yet, even more comforting still, which is in the midst of this passage, is God saying, but first, I'm going to gather all who would believe to myself. And, and before I execute justice on the world, I'm going to... I am going to send my servants out to bring the message of Jesus Christ that promises the forgiveness of sins to all sinners, no matter how unjust, so that they might be transformed into my children. So before I go, as, as Peter says in, in his second epistle, before I execute judgment, I am the only reason I haven't yet is because I'm, I desire that all would come to repentance. And so I'm working right now to bring these unjust people to repentance before I finally say enough is enough and bring my heaven down to earth. So that's the second sort of um, uh, the inspiration for the people. One is to look back and to say, yeah, you know, I look back at what you did with Abraham. That was pretty awesome. Yeah, I look forward to what you're going to do, and that sounds pretty awesome. And now he goes on in verse 7 to give a third reason for uh, them to have hope in the midst of hardship. Listen to me, you who know righteousness the people in whose heart is my law, that's you, by the way, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. So the last thing in our passage this morning that God points them to in the midst of their struggle and difficulty is to the... Uh, the eternality of his promises to them. So it's not merely that he's going to bring judgment one day and right the wrongs of the world, but that it's going to be forever, that that's not going to end. My righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Wonderfully comforting promises given to us, and Isaiah is chock full of them. But but where is his righteousness found? Where is his salvation that's given to all the generations found? Well, for that, you have to go back to where we started. It's found in the confession. It's found in the one who is the rock, Jesus Christ. The one who lived, died, and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins. That is ultimately the rock that you are cut from. And that is ultimately the rock that is your fortress, your righteousness, your salvation, freely given upon the cross for you, and still freely given in word and sacrament today. And so let us look to that hope as we look out to our Tuesdays and uh, uh, go off into our various vocations. Uh, that is it for this morning. Short little passage again. They've been shorter the last couple of weeks, but I uh, hope you have a great day. And we'll look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. God bless.